You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. In 2014, CNN Money estimated that, adjusted for inflation, 19th century robber baron Russell Sage would rank as the 18th richest American ever. This is a man who is not only ruthless in business, but he also had the reputation of being among the stingiest of all men. He supposedly did not believe in helping the poor, he had no use for higher education, and he refused to support women's causes that included women's suffrage and their right to an education. And when it came to women, it is said that he had nothing but disdain for his second wife, Olivia. The two simply couldn't stand the sight of one another. But when Sage died, his wife became the wealthiest woman on earth, and she set out to give away every penny of his fortune to all the causes that he had contempt for. So just who was Russell Sage, the meanest miser in the land? Well, joining me today to tell the story of Russell Sage is Kathy Sheen of the Hart Cluett Historical Museum in Troy, New York. Kathy currently serves as both the historian for the city of Troy and as the Rensselaer County historian, and we have a fantastic story to share with you today. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information. So, Kathy, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Steve. I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah, we've been talking on and off for probably about three, four years now about you coming on for the onto the podcast. And originally, I was going to do a story on Uncle Sam because he's, you know, uh, Sam Wilson is buried in Troy. Um, and then uh, I got into the discussion with you probably back in November about talking about Russell Sage. So here you are. Here we are. Yes, we're here to do some myth busting. <laughs> yeah. Um, now uh, I should mention you're not the more famous of the two Kathy Sheens in this area. Right. I mean, there's the mayor of Albany, who you are not. Correct. I am the Rensselaer County and Troy City historian and educator at the Harkloot Museum of Historic Rensselaer County. So we're going to talk about Russell Sage, and I thought we'd divide this into three parts. The first is we'll talk about who Russell Sage was. Mm -hmm. Then we'll talk about this crazy story that I heard a few years ago, and I've actually heard it twice, not once, and uh, that's why I asked you about it. And then uh, after that, we'll discuss what's true and what isn't, okay? Sounds great. Okay, so uh, what I did is I went through and I tried to consolidate a little bit about his life. So I'll read through those facts very quickly, and you can add any comments that you want, uh, you know, whether they're, you know, whether what I'm saying is right or wrong, or if you have something to add to it, okay? Okay, sounds good. I should mention you're a Troy native, right? I am. Yes. And I so have a branch of my family that goes back to the 1760s here wow. in Rensselaer County. That's amazing. So, yeah. Um, so, so basically, you grew up knowing about Russell Sage your whole life, I would assume. Yes. knowing Well, more knowing, certainly knowing about the college and knowing that he was one of the you know Gilded Age robber barons. Sure. But not really knowing all that much more about him un, until 
frankly, that I got involved working at the museum. So, Right. Um, I have to say, I never heard of the man until I moved to this area. So, um, you know, because uh, Russell Sage College isn't, you know, it's not like Princeton yeah, like or, or Harvard or something. You know? Right. So I never heard of it. Even Siena, which is down the road, I had never heard of until I moved to this area. Um, so for those who don't know about Russell, so I just quickly say, as you said, he was a robber baron and he was one of the richest men in the world uh, when he was alive. Yes. I mean, I think most people know more about, you know, Commodore Vanderbilt, mm-hmm. uh, Carnegie, uh, you know, some of those, some of those people, but yeah, Russell Sage was right up there. I mean, he was worth millions and millions of dollars when he died, which would be billions today, which would be billions today. Right. right. So anyway, so, uh, here are some of the facts that I accumulated. <laughs> so here we go. Uh, first he was born on August 4th, 1816 in Verona, New York, which is central New York. And I was looking at a map and you can really draw a line anywhere across New York state. It really is the center of the state. Um, And he was the youngest of six children and he was born into poverty. So at age 12, he picked up and left the farm, which is something that nobody would ever dream of doing today. I mean, people don't leave the, they stay at home as long as they can. No, but at 12 years old, you're practically an adult. You have to remember at that time, you know, kids are working in factories, Mm -hmm. you know, eight, nine years old. Sure. So that, you know, for that time period, not so uncommon, I don't think. Yeah, I, I just can't imagine it today. No, I can't either. But <laughs> yeah. So at age 12, he leaves, he goes to Troy, New York, where his older brother, Henry, uh, has a grocery store. And it was at the corner of River and Hutton Street in Troy. And that street's still there, but the buildings aren't. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Um, and uh, he worked as an errand boy initially, and he just kind of worked his way up and up and up. Now, his first wages were $4 per month, which is about $102 per month today, which isn't a lot of money. Uh, of course, he did get uh, room and board with that. Right. So It's significant that we're looking at that 1825 period, though. Yeah, because, why is that? Because this is when the Erie Canal had opened, mm-hmm. and Troy is really becoming the center of commerce. Mm-hmm. The fact that he was on Hutton and River Street, they literally are half a block away from the Hudson River where they were. Sure. And so the docks were all there. Um, this is where all the produce and, you know, farm products and things were all coming down from the rest of Rensselaer County, as well as Western Vermont and Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And so it's important now because we are the Eastern terminus of the Erie Canal mm-hmm. and the water is navigable right there behind that, behind that area where they have established the store. So it's, you're at the right place at the right sure. time. Yeah, and eventually Troy grew into one of the richest cities in the Absolutely. world. Absolutely, uh, right. I, I think twenty years, like eighteen forty, it's the fourth wealthiest city per capita. You know, there's some way that they figured that out, but right? Yeah, and, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast over the years that Troy is just a beautiful city to walk mm-hmm. around. I mean, you can see that it was once a, once a really really wealthy city. Right. Yeah. Very sophisticated taste too. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I do have a quote uh, from Russell Sage that I want to share with you uh, regarding his wages. So let's listen to that. Uh, And it goes, uh, after I went into my brother's store, I realized that I was lacking in education and determined to spend a part of my small earnings in attending night school. Of the $4 wages I got on the first of every month, I paid $1.50 to my teacher. I soon learned bookkeeping and the more intricate problems in arithmetic. I managed to borrow some books on history and read all the papers I could get my hands on. I had no time for anything else. And that's the end of the quote. Now, I should mention that liquor was a very, very important part of his business. And what was amazing is he, he tended bar, but he never drank or smoked once in his lifetime, which uh, is, is quite amazing. Well, again, let's look at, look at where he's born and raised. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's born and raised out in Verona, New York. Pretty much a temperate place out there. Oh, was it? Yeah. 
Yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Didn't know that. Um, uh, now, I did write down that uh, by the age of 15, he was making $4 a week. That's actually four times his starting salary. So in three years, mm-hmm. he's quadrupled his salary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he managed to save every single penny. At least that's what he claims. So I have another quote on that. I do not recall at this period in my life I had any particular ambition. About the only thing I made my mind up early was that I would never be a poor man. I said to myself I would succeed in whatever I undertook. I saw poverty all around me and dreaded it, adopting as my motto an old saying that of my father's that any man can earn a dollar, but it takes a wise man to save it. I saved the first dollar I ever earned, and from that time to this I have never owed a single cent that I was not ready to pay when it became due. So I just kind of went by age here. And I should mention that some of these dates may be a little off. I try to do the calculations, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from the newspaper articles of the time. Uh, at age 13, he made his first real estate purchase. He, he purchased two lots across the street for $200, which was a lot of money back then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then he got into horse trading and he used those earnings to purchase even more land. By age 15, I love this, he purchased a sloop. Uh, and of course, uh, that was the main form of transportation up and down the Hudson right. River. And again, that was after the monopoly was broken on the Hudson River. The whole Robert Fulton and the, and the you know, he was, he was controlling the Hudson River. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once that broke, um, then, you know, everybody could, you know, basically use the river as fair navigation travel. Yeah, so I didn't he, realize that. He jumped right on the bandwagon. Yeah, yeah smart guy. Yeah, this, this is why I have a historian on to talk about the story. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I know very little about it other than I knew that it took about a day. Uh, in best case scenario, it took about a day to get down to New York City. It's about 14 hours. Yeah. Right. Um, so, and, and, and that's if the wind's going in right. I mean, these, yeah. are, these are wind-powered sloops at that point. You're not like, sure. you're not talking about steamboats or anything. right? And, and, and the Hudson River is not a very windy area as a whole. It's also a terrible river to navigate. Sure. It's a very, very tricky uh, river to navigate all the way down still is today you have to have a special you actually have to have a special um uh, pilot's license if you have a boat over 200 feet wow yeah i didn't know that yeah uh, see i'm learning a lot <laughs> and i hope other people are also <laughs> anyway um he, he purchased a sloop and what he did is he transported horses safely from troy to new york city and then of course when he sailed back he loaded it with cargo of sure, provisions and, yeah right, he put yeah. provisions onto the boat now supposedly he made $700 on this trip which would be over $18,000 today and of course he used that and invested it more you know now by age 19 his brother Henry becomes ill so he invests with his brother Alicia and they purchase a store themselves at age 23 they turn around and sell that store for a good profit and now he's worth over $25,000 in cash which is about $660,000 today. He also owns several tracts of land and now he has two sloops. This guy is earning big bucks. Right. I mean this is at age 23, hard to believe. Uh, he established a host with that money he established a wholesale grocery business with a guy named John W. Bates. Uh, the company of course is called Sage and Bates and they use their own sailing vessels. Uh, they soon controlled both the Troy and Albany markets for Canadian and Vermont horses, and he started engaging in private banking. And his fortune continues to grow. By age 25, this is 1841, he had amassed a massive fortune of $75,000, which is over $2 million today. By age 28, he bought out his partner and he continued in the wholesale grocery business. He had extensive operations in beef, pork, flour, and grain at the time, and I assume still horses. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
By age 29, he was a pretty well-known businessman in Troy, and he became an alderman. Now, is that an elected uh, position? Uh, yes. Yes. And they usually were one or two-year appointments. Mm-hmm. I mean, an alderman. And for whatever district, usually whatever the district they lived in, which was at this point was down in Washington Park. Yeah. And then he became the Rensselaer County Treasurer. Now, was he alderman and treasurer at the same time, or they one then the other? Do you know? Um, I don't know if alderman and treasurers were, it was a concurrent position or mm-hmm. not. Usually the treasurer was a, a, a better position. Mm-hmm. So he probably got rid of the alderman yeah. and then became treasurer. Yeah. From what I gather, this is the total time of seven years. Mm-hmm. So now at age 36, this is in 1852, he made his first railway deal. And this is where he starts to really accumulate money. Uh, the first deal was for the Troy and Schenectady railroad, which at the time was owned by the city of Troy, but they were losing money the entire time. And apparently Sage created a deal with other businessmen and they bought out the railroad, but it made him really wealthy in the process. Then he turned around, of course, sold the stock and made a big fortune on that. This was one of the critical things that happened for Troy that also continued to bring um, money in because the Transconnected Railroad, what it did was run across what is the Green Island Bridge today. And so that bridge that was put in uh, was one of the first railroad bridges um, to cross the Hudson. Um, we beat out Albany for mm-hmm. that. So this was huge. And the fact that he is, you know, bailing, kind of bailing the city out at that point um, when it's, you know, starting to have other issues because now you have other railroad bridges by the time, by the 1850s. Sure. The one that was put in originally was like 1836. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are wooden covered bridges. Sure. Basically, it's on the same footprint as the current Green Island bridges today. Yeah. And of course, people don't live around Troy. I have no idea what we're, what we're talking, talking about. about. <laughs> but but yeah. it's one of the main well, but, bridges but in Detroit. You're also, what, you're, what it is, is is connecting, oh, now to connecting in this Troy and connecting railroad is you're opening up the West. Mm-hmm. So again, with the, you have the Erie Canal that opens up the West. And now you have the railroad that is opening up basically all the New England states and things coming back in through Troy going over this Green Island Bridge, this mm-hmm. Troy and Scanty Railroad, heading out west. Yeah, and we should so mention... this is huge. We should mention that Troy is on the east side of the Hudson River. On the east side of the Hudson River, and, and, correct. And, and basically, that connects you to the Atlantic Ocean, right? right? So, so anything right. east of Troy goes to the Atlantic, and then, of course, somehow you have to get the stuff across the Hudson River, uh, which runs from New York City straight north. Right. Uh, and I guess by car today, what is it, about a three-hour drive from, yep. from Troy to New York City, something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, so, so this allow people to, you know, basically open up the whole Western part of the United States. Exactly. And we th- we're the conduit for that. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Now, also in that same year when he's age 36, he's elected to the House of Representatives. He served two terms from 1852 through 1856. Now, supposedly in the second term, he won by 7,000 votes, which was the largest known to that point uh, in the district. Now, I don't know if that's a bit of an exaggeration. Or not. I, I don't know what the population would have been like in Troy at the time. Uh, or how many people even voted, you know, mm-hmm. but he did win by 7,000 votes. Now, in 1854, he's 38 years old at this point. His father dies, and he had amassed more than $1 million, which would be over $31 million today. So he's on his way to becoming that billionaire. Absolutely. Yeah, or t- what we call today a billionaire. Mm-hmm. At age 40 in 1856, he uh, leaves elected office, and he decides to focus solely on the railroads. He realized that's where the money is. And do you know what happened to his businesses, like his grocery business at the time? Do you have any clue? Um, I don't. I don't know if they were, you know, then sold. he sold them out to other, you know, other people or um, what happened. I mean, certainly going through city directories, you'd probably be able to figure that out. Sure. But, um, 
you know, there were there were so many people who were coming at that point. I mean, Troy is now just ballooned out. Sure, really has grown. Um, I, I'd imagine he sold it. I don't imagine him, him just losing money on anything. Yeah, no. you know. <laughs> um, uh, I, I should mention. I mean, he was considered ruthless in business. Uh, and I think that's pretty much still accepted today. He, you know, he was a, a wheeler and a dealer and sure. uh, did whatever he could to win, you know. Yeah. Now, uh, in 1857, he's 41. Uh, the panic of 1857 occurs. Uh, this is the first worldwide financial panic. And from what I've read, and I'm not a historian, but what I read is that basically because of the telegraph, all of a sudden now uh, financial panics aren't localized. Now it just spreads, you know, worldwide. So this is the first worldwide financial panic. Mm-hmm. And he had invested heavily in the Lacrosse Railroad, and in doing so, the railroad you know ran into financial problems, and he had to put more money into it. And through legal proceedings, he actually gained control of the railroad, uh, which eventually became the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul system. And he was both a director and vice president of the company. Mm. And I uh, I did notice uh, as I was reading through this, he became the president, vice president of a lot of a railroads. Lot of railroads. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, he, he was definitely in the right place at the right time. Sure. You know, he, certainly today, if you invested in railroads, you probably wouldn't have the same luck. You know? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Uh, then at age 47, this is 1863, he moves permanently to New York City and he becomes close friends with Jay Gould, who's another robber baron. Um, and as we said, they're both ruthless in their dealings. Uh, this is the Gilded Age, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, he basically made his fortune at the expense of others. Whenever he saw an opportunity, he would take take advantage of it. Well, and again, remember, 1863, we're in the middle of the Civil War. Sure. Everybody was making money. then. That's true. If you're, you're supplying, you're, well, he's, they're doing railroads. I mean, you've got your, your troops, your supplies, you know, all those auxiliary things that need to keep a war functioning. Mm-hmm. Going. You're making money off it. Yeah. I mean, Troy also made all, almost all the horseshoes, right? Absolutely. For, uh, for, for the Civil for the, War, for the right, North. For the, for the North, for the Union Army, right, mm-hmm. yeah. And Henry Burden in the Burden Ironworks. Right? Yeah, um, which there's not much left of today. I mean, this is the one big building down there, the uh, yeah, the, the headquarters, I guess. Yep. Uh, which is an interesting little museum yes, to go through. Yeah. I should mention Jay Gould. Uh, these two guys were really close friends, and uh, they were— Except they would have been rivals as well. I think that's interesting. Maybe they were friends, but they were this, you know. Yeah, it, it's hard. No hard one to, knows. You know, no one knows. Right? Uh, especially because uh, Russell Sage was a very private man, you know. It's hard to piece his life together. He wasn't one of these people that needed to let the world know what he was up to. Right, you know? right. So uh, now at age 58 in 1874, he purchased a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, you and I have both done that, right? Of course. <laughs> of course, yes. yes. <laughs> I've had my seat for years. Yep. Yes, sure. Uh, he originated the system of privileges, uh, and some of these terms are still used today, puts, calls, spreads, and straddles. And unlike other people who did really risky investments and try to get, you know, big chunks of money at one time, he preferred a rapid succession of moderate risks and quick returns. So he wasn't, he wasn't doing super risky stuff, mm-hmm. but he was still, you know, cranking in the money. Um, and eventually he became the largest individual lender of money in New York state. And some people say in the entire country. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, supposedly he had more cash on hand than anyone else except the country itself. <laughs> so they say, yeah, right. so they say, who knows? <laughs> Now, I did find that he did have one big loss, the only one reported in his entire life, and that was in 1884. He was 68 years old, and a company named Grant and Ward uh, basically uh, went under uh, and really uh, was a catastrophe for a lot of people. Now, my understanding was a bit of a pyramid scheme, 
And Ulysses S. Grant, our former president, his son was somehow involved. And even Ulysses S. Grant lost money in, in this. Wow. Uh, and it's reported that Russell Sage lost between 4 and $8 million, which doesn't sound like a lot until you adjust it for inflation. He lost somewhere between 125 and $250 million by wow. today's standards. Yeah, uh, I'd be bankrupt. <laughs> but, but, but he still recovered and moved on and got richer from there. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, he went on to get richer and richer throughout his life, and uh, that would continue until the day he died. But he was notoriously frugal. Uh, He lived very simply, and he kept very strict control of his money. Uh, Cheap, stingy, these were terms always used to describe him. He wore the plainest of clothing, uh, paid the bare minimum for meals. He would actually go uh, several blocks. He walked several blocks to the Western Union building, which he had stock in, and he'd go for their free lunches that they had there, so he wouldn't have to pay uh, supposedly he, you know, used public transportation when he could, anything yeah. to save a dollar. And it's reported that also that, you know, all the furnishings he had in his offices and at home, they were low and nothing, you know, there was nothing that he invested in. And most importantly to this story is that he steered away from any behavior that you can, you would consider to be philanthropic. He just did not believe in giving to charity. He just kept accumulating money. So uh, now I want to move on to his personal life, and this actually relates more to the crazy story that I'm going to tell, and that's the part that you really hear about, okay? Okay, uh, sounds good. Uh, so in 1840, he married Marie-Henri Winnie. Uh, she was a Troy native, and they were married in the First Presbyterian Church, which oddly is on what campus today? On the Russell Sage College campus. Yeah, yes. so uh, uh, it wasn't then. It was, it was a church. It was actually relatively new at that point. Uh, I think it was built in 1836. The, boy. Right. Uh, that, no, architect I, James Dakin. <laughs> yeah, tell your historian. I was going to. I was going to say mid eighteen thirties. I think it was built. So, um, their home was at the corner of Washington and Second Street. That's uh, Washington Park, which is a beautiful part of Troy. And why don't you just quickly mention about the park itself? So, Washington Park, like Gramercy Park in New York City, is one of only two privately owned parks in New York State. And to what we know of today, is only one of three in the country. The other one is this little tiny strip of park at the north end of the Boston Common. But the way Washington Park and and like Gramercy did in New York, and they're both, um, Gramercy I think is like 1835, and, and our Washington Park in Troy is about 1840. And um, you, you all the property owners, you know, paid a certain amount of money into this park. It was a passive park. Um, everyone that lived on the park got a key, so it was always locked. Um, and even to this day, which it still exists mm-hmm. as a private park, which is quite wonderful. And um, you, you still, it, there's no playground equipment and things like that. It is a, it is a completely passive green space. His um, house was right on the corner of Second and Washington Street. Very um, wonderful home, apparently built by his father-in-law mm-hmm. um, in, the, in a Gothic revival style. It is, it is now an apartment building. But um, this is a major home. This is this is very it's very high style. So I think it's kind of interesting how a lot of language always talks about the plane because this is not a plain home at all. No, but uh, I should say compared to the other houses around Washington Park, it's a little bit simpler. It's a little simpler, a little but smaller. It, you know, again, but it, again, 1840, the Gothic Revival style mm-hmm. was a very popular style. I think one of the interesting things I think we'll find as we go through this conversation this morning is is the fact that, yes, we think of Russell Sage as this Gilded Age robber baron, but he is from old money. Um, and so it's if uh, and I, we're going to I'm certainly going to throw the comparison out to this new series that's been out that HBO is doing called sure. The Gilded Age, which was filmed and, around which Washington was filmed Park. around Washington Park. And it's it's some way where you're looking at 
um, the way people treated old money. And it was not to be ostentatious, um, not to always just have the things that were the showiest, but they were always good quality furnishings, good quality, well-built homes mm-hmm. that are classic, um, but not over the top. He would fall into that category. We talk about the the two families they talk about in this show, the Van Rines, who were early Dutch families. Well, Russell Sage is early, early, you know, right, what we say, we're in 18, you know, early 19th century. Mm-hmm. So he fits into that category. So even though he amasses this incredible fortune, even before what is termed the Gilded Age, after after the Civil War, really, sure, um, is that he still has this kind of older ethic. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you would you wouldn't you're not automatically just going to change it just because you have all this money sure and, and i think a lot of people are like that i mean not that my wife and i are wealthy but but if i ever became wealthy i can't imagine changing my life you know right uh we're, we're simple people we 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 just like living that way we're not you know we're not into showing off what we have you right know? right uh, and so that's the way he was and mm-hmm. and, and certainly his first wife marie uh Henri Whit- winnie um, her family's an old Troy mm-hmm. family. Actually, they go back, I think they're Connecticut originally. So they're one of those families that came in after the American Revolution, settled in New York, or settled in Troy, excuse me. And uh, so they, they too are old money. Mm-hmm. And that Washington Park area, that's the first suburbs of Troy coming down from the business district, which was all of about four blocks away from where the main hub of things. So people worked and lived very close, you know, people didn't live far away from where they're working. So, you know, it's, it's, they, they walked. They had no choice. I mean, there were no cars, you know? No, but we, yeah. there were a lot of horse rail, horse trolleys and, sure. and things like that. So, you know, they couldn't, and, and that's not to say they didn't have, you know, summer homes outside the city um, or, you know, in other places and things like that. And they, even, even at that point, they were going to Saratoga for the summer. You're going mm-hmm. to, even to Newport um, before the Gilded Age mansions were there. But, you know, predominantly when you're around, people were, are close to living and working nearby. Was That was that was the norm. Sure. So. Um, now, Russell Sage was married twice. And uh, unfortunately, his first wife, she died at 56 years of age in 1867 from stomach cancer. Uh, I found that in a number of uh, different articles. But what I really think is most important to uh, that portion of his life is that she was a graduate of the Troy Female Seminary, which today is known as Emma Willard uh, School, which is right down the road from here. Correct. At that time, was it downtown Troy? Or Yes, it was. It was okay. actually the Troy Female Seminary um, is now the site of Russell Sage College. Mm-hmm. So once the college moved um, in late 1890s, they moved out to the east side, closer here to your house. Um, they had an empty campus, and of course, that's going to be part of our story later about yeah, so maybe, uh, Russell Sage College. Yeah. But yes, it was the, the was right in the, the heart of downtown, right sure. on on Second Street and Congress, which is Ferry. right down the street from your office, exactly yeah. half a block away. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So anyway, she passes on, and then two two years later, he remarries, and he marries Margaret Olivia Slocum, who was born in 1828 in Syracuse. Now, her parents were considered, I guess, middle class. And her father, John, uh, he prospered during the building of the Erie Canal, but his businesses started to fail uh, in the Panic of 1837. Mm -hmm. And he had a lot of bad business dealings, and uh, he just started losing money, losing money, losing money until, I wouldn't say they were poor, but they were not in great shape. And in 1852, and this is the only little piece that I think may be a little bit embellished, 
uh, he learned that one of the investors that you know basically cheated him was Russell Sage himself. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I had no, no article mentioned what or how he was cheated, but just that Russell Sage cheated him. Cheated him. And of course, what does his daughter do? She goes off and marries him. Marries the guy, here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but before that, she uh, attended also the Troy Female mm-hmm. Seminary from 1846 through 1847. Now, sh- her father didn't have the money, so supposedly a wealthy uncle in Troy paid her way. Yeah, right? actually, I think they were over in West Troy, which is now Water of Leet, okay. across the river on the west side of yeah, the Hudson. Okay. Right? Yeah. Um, and for the next 20 years, she wasn't doing very well. She basically was a teacher. She taught in Troy, Syracuse, Philadelphia, and the pay was reported to be really low, about $200 per year or about $6,200 a day. I mean, you yeah, teachers even... still didn't make any money then either. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> started that far back. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was assumed that they get married and, uh, and that would be the right. end of their career, you know? Right. Uh, now, now she did have several offers of marriage, but she considered them supposedly too restricting, and they weren't to her advantage. So she just turned down the guys. Next thing you know, she's in her forties and she's unmarried. Uh, Russell Sage comes along, and do you have any clue how the two of them knew each other? Was it through his first wife, or um, I don't know if if because they were not they would not have been in school at the same time. Um, her and uh, Marie, but. Um... I don't know where the where they would have met, where their paths would have crossed. To be yeah. honest with you, yeah. I, I read several different things, and they don't agree. One mm-hmm. is that they did know each other from the school, uh, and they were and Russell Sage actually knew his uh, his second wife for about twenty years because she was friends with you know his first wife. His first wife. Uh, the other story is that somehow he or she heard. Uh, that his wife had passed on, sent him a condolence uh, letter, and, and they, they started, started correspondence. correspondence, and you know, so on. Uh, what's interesting is I think at this point he's living in New York City; he's not in Troy, uh, right? Um, in 18- yeah, because he leaves in eighteen sixty-three. So yeah, so right. so somehow she's she's living in Troy, mm-hmm. and somehow they get together and get married. Now they married on November twenty-fourth, eighteen sixty-nine. She was forty-one years old, and he was fifty-three. And they would remain married until his death 37 years later. Yeah. They were married a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, he does pass on. Uh, he died at 4.30 p.m. on July 22nd of 1906 at his country home in Lawrence Beach, Long Island. Now, supposedly he hadn't been to this home in like four or five years. Um, but when he was getting close to death a few weeks before, they decided the fresh air would do him good and get out of the city. Because he lived on Fifth Avenue in New York City in Manhattan. And they went out to this country home, and he's out there with his doctor, and he died in natural causes at the age of 89. Now, I do have a quote uh, from his doctor, and I love this doctor's name is Dr. Schmuck. Dr. Schmuck. (laughs) I never thought that was a true name, but yes, Dr. Schmuck uh, said the following, quote, his end was most natural. First, Mrs. Sage fell asleep. From sleep, he passed into coma, and from coma into death. Doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, I mean, that's... uh, at 89 years, 89? Yeah, yeah 89 years 89 old. 89 years old, right. His funeral was just two days later, the first Presbyterian church in Far Rockaway in Queens. From there, his body was taken to his home on Fifth Avenue where it stayed overnight. The next day, they went to Grand Central Station and there were two cars added onto the Saratoga Special that brought his body up to Troy. He is buried in Oakwood Cemetery in Troy, which I should mention is the most famous person buried in there is who? Uncle Sam. Yeah, Sam Wilson. Wilson. Um, and uh, I've been to it several times, and it's, it is a beautiful cemetery. It really is, yeah. 
Yeah. And he's buried in the same exact plot as his first wife, Marie. Right. Now, when he died, he was a very, very wealthy man. And in 2014, CNN ranked Sage as the 18th richest American ever. Now, you can figure out wealth. You can adjust for inflation in a lot of different ways. And you can just do a linear adjustment. And he'd be probably worth about $2, 3000000000 billion, which compared to today's billionaires doesn't sound like, like nothing. a lot. Right. But you have to compare it with the whole U.S. economy. You have to compare it with what the stock market was worth and so on. And there is a calculator that does that. And according to the calculator that was used for this article, he'd be worth $53.6 billion in 2014. Now, I went to that same calculator, of course, for a few years later, about eight years later, he'd be worth $58.7 billion. That puts him in you know, the Mark Zuckerberg uh, realm. Right. You know, so he was a very, yeah. very wealthy man, man when he died. Yeah, yeah. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so now we get to the crazy story that I heard. And as I said, I've heard this twice. And that's when I uh, came up to you uh, to ask you about it. And you're going to bite your lip through some of these. Now, some of this is true and some of it's not. So we're, we're not going to try and tip our hands here. Okay. Um, okay. So okay. Uh, here we go. Uh, the first thing is it was well known that he was mean and unliked by people. So probably the best example of that occurred on December 4th of 1891 when a guy named Henry Norcross walked into Sage's Manhattan office, which was located at 71 Broadway, Manhattan, and demanded $1.2 million in cash, which is over $37 million. Who would have that much cash on hand? Yeah. You know, even, Give me your $1.2 million. Yeah. Right? Just kind of crazy. Of course, Sage refused, and he did everything he could to stall. And as a result, Norcross just blew himself up. He, he took... They say 10 pounds of dynamite, and it said either he somehow detonated or he dropped it to the floor. Different reports at the time described differently. But anyway, Norcross, of course, was killed, but they didn't know his identity initially. And the way they identified, this is kind of interesting, one of the buttons that was left behind on his body, they had a little bit of his clothing. They were able to trace it back to a Brooks Brothers store in Boston, and they were able to figure out who he was. Now, what's interesting is this is the first suicide bombing ever in the United States. Hmm. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, I read that in several different places. Now, also, his secretary, that's Sage's secretary, B.F. Norton, was killed uh, because when the dynamite went off, uh, you know, there was a hole in the ceiling. The floor was blown to smithereens, and Norton just went flying through the plate glass window to the street below. Supposedly, a typewriter came down on him and, you know, crushed him. Wow. Yeah. Now, Sage and eight other people were injured, 
And Sage supposedly used one of the guys, that's William Laidlaw, as a human shield. So supposedly Sage grabbed him and pulled him in front of him, and that protected Sage uh, from getting killed. And of course, Laidlaw sued Sage. And this dragged through the courts for seven years, which supposedly was one of the longest civil trials in U.S. history up until that point. And uh, for that reason, because Sage refused to pay anything, he just kept you know, finding lawyers to keep fighting it, fighting it, fighting it. He was vilified in the press. And I just wrote down some of the terms that were used. He was a skinflint, a miser, heartless millionaire, ruthless, unscrupulous, crook, and the meanest miser in the land. And I'm thinking of making that the title of my podcast. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, Laidlaw was awarded $43,000 eventually, which would be about $1.5 million today. But Sage, being the miser that he was, he refused to ever pay. And he never did pay. Hmm. Now, if you go back in time a bit to 1869, Sage was arrested for violating the New York State usury laws. Basically, he was lending money at an unconscionable and an exorbitant rate. And I, I can't believe what he was doing. Short-term loans range between 40 to 80% interest. Can you imagine? While his long-term rates were somewhere between 14 and 20%. Although I should mention, what is a credit card today? That's a short-term loan, maybe like 25%. Say, 25%. Yeah, right. so, but 40 to 80% is kind of crazy. Uh, as a result, he received a fine and a five-day prison sentence. But somehow, through the legal wranglings, the judge suspended the jail sentence. So he never served <laughs> a day in jail. Again, the privileges of being rich, you know. You're right. Now, it's also said that he associated with women who partook in questionable behavior, and you can fill in the blanks there. And as a result, because of his lending practices and being convicted and his messing around with these women, so to speak, he became a pariah in elite social circles, and he supposedly needed to restore his public image. So who does he turn to? Now, his wife had just recently died. He decides to marry Olivia Slocum in 1869. Of course, she's a spinster. She's 41 years old. She's never going to marry. But she had a little bit of social standing, and that was going to restore him to uh, you know the social circles. Now, supposedly, this was a loveless marriage. These two people just couldn't stand each other. It was only for appearance. And supposedly, and I don't know how you prove this, the marriage was never, ever consummated. Yeah, I like that one. That's fine. Now, when I say these two people despise each other, they really despise each other. He made her life miserable. Now, here, here is one of the richest men on earth. He had no private carriage. They had to walk, use public transportation, or find some other means. You know, hitch a ride with somebody else, I guess. He gave Olivia no allowance. She couldn't keep up with the latest fashion trends. She wasn't allowed to travel abroad or even with the United States very much. Um, their homes were small, and they were far from what anyone would call a mansion. Their furniture and artwork, it was of little value. Now, this is my favorite one. Supposedly, he hated dogs and she hated cats. So one by one, he, you know, he would buy a cat to annoy her. She would buy a dog to annoy him. And they just keep doing that and keep getting more dogs and more cats. And most significantly was that Marie was Russell's only true love. He loved his first wife and just never got over her loss. And Olivia had to live in Marie's shadow the rest of, uh, you know, the rest of the time that Russell was alive. Of course, Sage eventually dies, and she becomes a widow. And Russell Sage had, there were three things that he hated in life. The first was philanthropy. He just didn't believe in helping the poor. Basically, he felt they need to help themselves. That's what he did. He was born into poverty, and he worked his way out of it. They should do the same. He also didn't believe in higher education, just a waste of time. 
and probably most significantly, is he hated women. He just had, he saw no use for educating them. He didn't believe in women's suffrage and just didn't like women at all, even though he had married two of them, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, Sage left absolutely nothing to charity nor any member of his family. And by default, Olivia gets everything, and she becomes the richest woman on earth. And there's no question on that. I mean, every newspaper reported it at the time. Now, uh, what she decided to do was basically get even with him. She decided, because these two hated each other, she decided to take all that money and put it towards all the things he hated, you know, philanthropy, higher education, and anything having to do with women. So within six weeks of his death, she donates $294,000, that's $9.15 million today to New York University, for what? Women's education. <laughs> Just to kind of, you know, kind of, eh, you know, tighten the screws there a little bit. Then in April 1907, she gives $10 million, over $300 million today, to establish the Russell Sage Foundation for Social Betterment, basically to help improve the social and living conditions of the poor in the United States. Which, which still, by the way, still exists today. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it's in New York City, is that correct? Yes, correct. Then in 1910, she gives a million dollars to the Troy Female Seminary. That's the school she graduated from. That allows them to build a brand new campus, which is right down the road from my house. There's no way to describe how beautiful this campus is. It's an amazing campus. Yeah, I mean, you, it, it looks like something out of the movies, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just a beautiful, beautiful, uh, you know, neo-Gothic uh, campus. So by this point, the school's no longer called the Troy Female Seminary. It's renamed after its founder, which is Emma Willard. Correct. Uh, then in 1916, this is going uh, forward for six years, she's left with this campus downtown where Emma Willard used to be, doesn't know what to do with it. So what does she do? She takes a million dollars and gives it to establish the Russell Sage College for women. So basically, she's just, you know, doing everything he hated. Mm -hmm. Now, I just made a list here. This is just a general list of things she gave generously to, and he would have never approved of any of these, at least according to the story I heard. Right. She gave generously to schools, colleges, and universities, particularly Wellesley, Vassar, and Bryn Mawr, which are all female colleges, women's colleges. She gave heavily to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Syracuse University, uh, RPI. In 1907, she gave them $1 million. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at a map of RPI from uh, around that time. It was actually a pretty small campus at that point. Uh, and I, I didn't know this, but their main building had burned down just a couple years prior. Yeah. And this money allowed them to build a new building. Right. There's actually a Sage building yeah. on the campus, right? There's actually two Sage buildings. Two Sage buildings. Uh, right. yeah. Although one is not named after Russell Sage. It's after his nephew, yeah. Russell right. Sage II, which is kind of odd. I always thought the second was your son, but right. but it's actually his nephew. Now, she, she donated money for the employment training of women, women's suffrage. She donated to hospitals, retirement homes. She purchased Constitution Island for the nation. That's down near West Point. Uh, she paid for a number of church buildings across the country, and she even supported the Syracuse YMCA. Now, between 1907 and 1918, that's when she died, she gave away $35 million, which is over $900 million today. And I came across this uh, mention in 1909 in the Syracuse Herald, they said she was giving money away so quickly that she was giving away $10 every single second, which is $312 per second today. Could you imagine? Can you imagine? That's incredible. Yeah. Um, and, of course, it was all given to causes that our husband despised. Theoretically. Now, <laughs> theoretically, yeah. So we're going to talk about that in a bit. 
Now, I do want to throw in one other thing here, and that is his mausoleum. And that is up, uh, as we said, in the Oakwood Cemetery. Uh, and that's uh, basically northern Troy, right? Yes. And uh, the mausoleum is very unusual. It, it's a beautiful mausoleum, uh, kind of, I guess, uh, Greek, Greek revival. Greek yeah. revival. Yeah. And there's no name on it. It's unmarked. And it's said that it's unmarked because she did not want to give him any recognition. She didn't want anyone to adore this despised man, this man that she despised. Um, but what's interesting is if you walk behind it, now remember, she lived in his first wife's shadow the whole rest of Russell Sage's uh, life. And the mausoleum blocks the first wife's uh, you know, obelisk. It's basically a very tall obelisk, right. uh, which is her grave marker. And you, you can look from any direction at this mausoleum and you cannot see it because it's that close. It really just blocks the whole thing mm-hmm. out. And probably most significantly, and this is the last thing I'll mention before we get into what's true and what isn't, she refused to be buried with him. She just would not be buried there. And she is buried in Oakwood Cemetery, but not that Oakwood. She's buried in Oakwood out in Syracuse. Syracuse, right. Hey, Matt, did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope, never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's triviality. So, Kathy, this this is the point where I went to you and I I was actually doing a tour about the Gilded Age. Right. Uh, you were doing that. And uh, at the end of it, I said to you, you know, I... I I learned all this about Russell Sage's crazy, crazy story about him, about how stingy he was and how his wife just did everything to spite him when when he died. But then I came across an article just a short time uh, before I saw you, and it didn't jive. It, di- it didn't match up with what I had heard about him, and that's what I went to you, and we started talking, and that's why you're here today. So we're going to try and clear that up. And what I did was I kind of broke it down into sections, and we'll just kind of go through that kind of stuff, okay? Okay, and, sounds good. Uh, and, and we'll clear up what was true. Now, I should tell you, I should mention to the people who are listening that the first part of it, basically his life, how he earned his money, so that's pretty factual. Yeah. Right. But the whole part about you know, uh, you know, him not supporting women's causes, stuff, we're, we're going to talk about that. Right. Uh, what, uh, some of that is fictitious. Uh, exactly. It's more legend than, than truth. Right. Make, makes for a good story, so yeah. to speak. Right. Makes for a good story. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So uh, here we go. So uh, the first thing I have on my list is that, uh, and this is just a brief little thing I came across, is that he was forced to leave Troy because he was so unpopular there in 1863, and that's why he went to New York City. Now, what do you think? I don't believe that at all. I think it was just, it was it was the nature for him to move on. He would, He needed to be able to be in New York City. Right. It, just, it was the evolution of his businesses. So, and, and there were a lot of people and they probably, and I could prove this to go again through city directories and things is that 
there were a lot of people who were back and forth, and Troy in New York City had long-standing contacts um, and fam and families and businesses that were doing businesses both in New York and Troy. So while he may have moved his home there, I'm sure he still they still obviously they hit their contacts back because he comes back to Troy quite a bit, right. Uh, so. And and we'll talk about that also. I mean, yeah. through the rest of his life, he's right. heavily involved, heavily involved in what's going on in yeah, Troy. Absolutely. Uh, now, the the second thing I have on my list is his refusal to pay William Laidlaw. Remember, this is trial, right? Uh, multiple trials. There were four trials. Some of them are you know decisions are set aside. Some are, are appealed. Whatever. And in the fourth trial, Laidlaw was awarded forty three thousand dollars, which is a lot of money. A lot of money. Um, but what is not mentioned, because it, it, it's said that Sage refused to pay even though he had lost a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. But that's not true, is it? No, I don't think so. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, in 1899, the Court of Appeals overturned that decision because they felt there wasn't enough evidence to show that Sage had used laid law as a human shield. Right. He wasn't responsible for his injuries. So they ordered a fifth trial but it just never occurred. I mean, you, you've gone through all this for all these years and you're not getting anywhere. I guess the lawyers at some point said, you know, that's it. That's it. And then of course, uh, when Sage died, that was the end of it. Right. Yeah. Right. So that, that myth is destroyed. So, uh, and, and I'm sure, uh, you know, with all the money that he had, he was fighting every, you know, tooth and nail all along, you know, but, right. but he never was required to pay that money. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting time with just all these other kind of Gilded Age robber barons, that these people that came in with with bombs and you know tried to extort people for money mm-hmm. extort these disgustingly rich people with for money happened to a lot of them it wasn't sage wasn't the only one that you know of course what happened with laid laws that was unfortunate for sure right. but yeah you don't know whether did he really shield him or you just grabbed him right you now it's kind of you know there's he, an instinct he right yeah i mean you, you know yeah. we weren't there he could have just grabbed right. him to try and push him aside push him aside yeah uh, exactly uh so yeah. but you know right. of course sage had the money so you always right. you know, you're always gonna take the other guy right, right. <laughs> um now uh, the next thing out of my list is that he married olivia simply to restore his public image and that the marriage was never consummated now of course we'll never know about the consummated part uh, you know that's just people I, that's that's clearly something that people want to believe, you know. I mean, they they would never talk about that in the newspapers or never. anywhere. Yeah, uh, and uh, what I learned doing my research is these two were very private people. They did not live for front page news, you know. Right. No, they just kind of went about, and, you know, as met as as we said before, you know, this this kind of old money and and just more quiet ways, you know, it was not to be Austin state ostentatious. Right. Um, that is just not, and that they were, again, they weren't the only ones who were like that, you know, it was just, that's kind of, uh, it's a, such a later thing mm-hmm. um, to yeah. throw your wealth around. Right. So to speak. And, uh, I should mention that I did find a couple of mentions that he was rumored to have had affairs, uh, he was accused at one point of having a child at a wedlock with a chambermaid, mm. uh, and he was sued at the age of 88 for sexual wrongdoing, but the judge threw that case out. Although Sage never denied it, the case did get thrown out. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's 88 years old. He's 88 years he, old. He died one year later. So, uh, yeah. um, so, anyway, so we'll, we'll put that in the, uh, uh, my guess is he did not marry her to restore his public image, no. um, but- uh, we really don't know much. He may have had affairs and may not, you know, who knows? Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm sure there were many others who did also. Who did also, right? right? That was a very, you know, mistresses for a lot of these was very common occurrence. So, 
Right. Now we get into the main part, and that is that he hated philanthropy, he hated upper education, and he hated supporting women's causes. And basically, this guy was a tight-fisted person who he wouldn't part with a penny for anything. Uh, and I learned basically from the reading is that Sage encouraged this image. And my thinking is, when people think that way, they're not going to come to you and keep bugging you all the time for money. You know, uh, you're better off thinking someone, you know, thinking someone's not as rich as they are. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so I don't know if that's really true. But he had very strict rules for giving, and I did come across a quote from uh, Sage on that. So let me read that. Now, this quote is from September of 1904. So this is actually, he was still alive. So this is not, you know, quoted after he passed right. on. And he says, um, charity should be wise as well as kind. It should look far into the future. Charity should never be hysterical. A man should know the institution he is helping. He should favor all well-managed charities for women. Charity should be as far as possible exercise in privacy. The right hand should not know what the left hand doeth. He adds, these are my rules for giving. I have followed them all my life. Whatever may be said of me, I know that I am doing right with the help of God. Very much a tenet of the Presbyterian Church, Mm -hmm. of which they both were were members. Mm -hmm. Quietly do things. Right. It is not to be showy, not to let the world know what you're doing. You just do it. Right. Another thing I'll add is that I noticed that he was a trustee at RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, mm-hmm. for probably the last 10 years of his life. So a guy who hated upper education, why would he be a trustee of an engineering college, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And he also is a trustee of the Troy Female Seminary. Sure. <laughs> um, and, if, and, we're gonna get, and that's actually the next thing I have on my list mm-hmm. is that in 1895, now he's very well alive at this point. Mm-hmm. In 1895, he donated the Russell Sage Hall to the Troy Female Seminary, which we said is now Emma Willard School. Uh, this was a dormitory, and it cost him $105,000 exclusive of furniture. That would be over $3.5 million today. Now, this guy hated women and hated educating women. Here he is giving all this money to it. And he's very much alive, and we discussed this before. He was very much involved. Extremely. So the architects of that building, um, Marcus and Fred Cummings, um, were periodically going down to New York City, pouring over the plans. He had very specific ideas. Um, it was a new concept, too, in the, for this dormitory. Uh, for, a lo- for a while, they used to have uh, young women, they would have double beds and they mm-hmm. had bigger rooms and you roomed and this there was now a trend going to having quiet space and having single beds which he was a big proponent of and then having a common area space mm-hmm. to be in and so he was all about that and he wanted them to include all of that into the design of the building yeah and it's a beautiful building. it's a beautiful building um, wonderful yeah it, it's right on the park there right. uh, uh the main park of uh russell sage uh, college mm-hmm. And uh, it's a kind of, a, I would say, a tannish sandstone. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I did have a question for you, and I don't know if you know the answer. I, I was looking at it uh, when I was going to meet you last week, or uh, I was walking around through the park, and I noticed there are dates. On, usually you have on the foundation just one date, you know, telling you know, the cornerstone, telling you when the building uh, was built. But there are dates on there. It's like 1821, 18, no, uh, 1920, 1921, 1922 along the foundation. Do you have any idea why those numbers are there? No, actually, I don't. There's, there's, um, and I'll have to go back and look. But yeah. I know that that wonderful yellow brick was quarried out near Perth Amboy down in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And he actually had hired someone to watch that process being done 
to be sure they had the best quality wow. bricks that came out of there. So he really had such you know direct involvement in that project from day one. Yeah, and if anybody comes to Troy, you Google an image of it, you'll see a wonderful statue of Emma Willard that was dedicated the same day. Mm-hmm. They dedicated the statue of Emma Willard. They dedicated the statue or the building Russell Sage Hall, and they you'll you'll see them right behind. It's right behind, right next to each other, yeah. right next to each other. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. Uh, I mean, I've I said it before, and I'll I've said it many times on the podcast. Troy is an amazingly beautiful city to walk around. Um, I mean, the architecture is just incredible. Uh, and to think a lot of it fell, I would say, I wouldn't say into disrepair, but was neglected for a very long period of time as Troy's yeah. fortunes right. uh, and, you know, diminished. Yeah, and the urban renewal movement sets in in the you know in the sixties and early seventies. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was it was a downtime, but yeah. fortunately we protected a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, uh, we we were uh, down in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, maybe two summer, not this past summer. Uh, maybe it was a summer. Of, I, I'm, you know, it becomes a blur after a while. Maybe it was last summer. Uh, actually, I think it was last summer. We're this summer, last summer. So uh, we're down there, and Jim Thorpe. Have you ever been there? No. It's a beautiful, beautiful town, and um, much smaller than Troy. It was a coal, you know, basically coal built the town, and it had many, many millionaires living there in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's well preserved. And what we learned is the reason it's well-preserved is everything was supposed to be demolished, but they had no money to do it. That's exactly what happened in Troy. <laughs> yeah. And, and therefore, they just left the building standing, and eventually, you know, people rediscover it, and they refurbish these places, and they're just spectacular. Right. And, uh, and not just you, but anybody should go. It's just, if you're down in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, it's definitely a beautiful, beautiful place to go. At least Western Pennsylvania? Eastern Pennsylvania? It's uh, it? Western. It's, Western. Uh, you know, the coal mining region. Oh, okay, coal yeah. mining region. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's, um, not too far from like, uh, I think Allentown. Allentown. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I don't know my way around Pennsylvania too. I, I could be totally wrong. Someone's going to send me an email that I'm, that I'm way off, but it, you know, you, you just get in your car and you drive and you follow the GPS, you know, and you get right. there and, uh, the whole area is just spectacular. Right. Uh, um, I, I don't know if we'll ever go there again. There's just so many other spectacular places mm-hmm. to visit in life, but it's definitely worth once in your lifetime going there. Going to see it. And, and the coolest thing we did the whole time was they have uh, a coal mine. You can actually take the cars down into oh the coal God. mine and walk around in there. It's it's really freaky. Wow. Um, that's amazing. Uh, you, you realize how bad the lives of these coal miners yeah. were. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's okay. crazy. So um, I do have a couple of quotes I want to read. Uh, one is of the bronze tablet that hangs in Russell Sage Hall. Mm-hmm. And another one is from Russell Sage. Let me read those. So now this bronze tablet is posy above the fireplace in the hall. I don't know if it's still there or not because I believe the building's locked. You can't go in. Um, but it says Russell Sage Hall, 1894, erected by Russell Sage to perpetuate the name and fame of Mrs. Emma Willard, the pioneer in higher education for women and founder of Troy Female Seminary, 1821. And it's a grateful testimony to the citizens of Troy for their lifelong friendship and goodwill. Yes, for somebody that hates higher education sure. and hates women. <laughs> and, and, Let's go give a bundle of money and fix this building and, you know, dedicate yeah. to this women and, and be intimately involved in it. And here, here's where the second one ties into what you just said. And this is from 1904, so he's still alive. The happiest day of my life was when the building I gave to the Emma Willard Seminary was dedicated. This building costs $150,000 and is named after the donor, the Russell Sage Hall. He continues... Years and years ago, as alderman of Troy and trustee of your seminary, then in its early youth, 
I had helped it as I could because it appealed to me as the right kind of thing. So here's a guy who supposedly hates upper education, hates women, and uh, he's been supporting the school all All along. along. Yep. Right, from the very beginning. Now, he didn't just give to that. He gave to other causes during his life, and I have another quote there. This is by Henry Clouses, a banker who was well familiar with uh, Sage, and he says, Mr. Sage had contributed much money to charity during his lifetime, although the public had only learned of his gift of an endowment fund of $100,000 for Sage Hall in the Willard School for Girls at Troy, the school of which Mrs. Sage is an alumnus. He continues, Mr. Sage had contributed a large sum to Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee Institute. So clearly, you know, he was very quiet in what he did. I mean, he didn't, you know, go out of his way to, uh, to make it known that he had given the money. Right. Now, I did find in that same article uh, when he was still alive that he would every year transport 2,000 poor children from Poughkeepsie each summer up to Upton Lake, which is, uh, I believe, in Dutchess County. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had an, now, of course, he owned the railroad that took him there. Sure. And the railroad built the park. Uh, it was an amusement park. And of course, the kids could use the playgrounds, the swings, and merry-go-rounds. And he gave them free refreshments and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's generous, but at the same time, what is it really costing him? But uh, yeah, I'm sure he had some sort of write-off. I don't know. Right. But um, now, as much as he hated women, you have to really question that because both his wives were graduates of the Troy Female Seminary, you know? Exactly. I mean, why would a guy who hated women marry two intelligent, independent, and confident women? And one of the interesting um, stories that always went around for years was, oh, he loved his young wife that she died. She wasn't that young when she died. I mean, you know, really, you know, she, you know they had a, a decent length of marriage together, mm-hmm. and it wasn't uncommon Women, women died or even men died, and you had multiple marriages. Sure. So, you know, we kind of keep putting later ideas about how things should be and trying to, you know, place them into, a, into the 19th century. And, you know, you have to be careful of doing that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, uh, he definitely had, I mean, he knew what he was getting into with both women. I mean, Absolutely. What, he wasn't looking for some timid woman who would do whatever he said. These were strong, educated women. Right. I mean, so few not even just women, but few, so few people were educated back then. And these two women both were. And he knew that his second wife was a suffragist, you know. Right. So uh, that yeah. whole idea that he hated women and didn't believe in their education, yeah. I think that's and all. Checks in his name to the suffrage movement um, in down in New York City supporting rallies and things like that. Mm-hmm. His hand, not right. hers. His. Yeah. So. Which I didn't come across in anything. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, I do have a quote about him being a mean man, you know, mean, mean Mr. Uh, Russell Sage mean here. Mr. Russell Sage. And this quote is from Dr. Schmuck. <laughs> mm-hmm. It has often been alleged that Mr. Sage was a mean man. After many years of close association with him, I can say this is not true. If he was careful of every expenditure, it was because he was a man who realized the value of detail. He understood that every dollar has its value and was consequently careful of how he spent even trifling sums. So I think what he's saying is basically he was, may have been considered a little bit ruthless in business, but he was a generous person among the people who knew him. Who knew him, right, and things that he cared about, right. So the next uh, little section I put together is that he left nothing to charity or, or to his family in his will. Basically, everything went to his wife by default. Now, I did find out his will was drawn up in 1901, 
And when he died, he was worth about $80 million, but due to financial, uh, set, you know, basically the economy goes up and down, when they finally settled the estate, it was worth $64,153,800.91. Got to get that Got to get that 91 cents. 91 cents. Yeah. And Mrs. Sage's share was $63,788,900.91. What's interesting is everyone thought he didn't give anything to his family. He left $650,000 to his nieces, nephews, grandnieces, and one great-grandnephew. Mm-hmm. Now, these numbers don't add up because um, if, if you do the math, it doesn't add up to $650,000. Mm-hmm. And that's because in the New York Times, they just listed person by person. And I think they didn't know some of the names. Yeah. But to 24 nieces and nephews, they each got $25,000 each, which doesn't sound like a lot until you translate into today's dollars. That would be three quarters of a million dollars yeah. each. Yeah. Uh, you're, uh, you're not doing too bad when you yeah, got that $25,000. Right. And considering these are nieces and nephews, they probably hardly knew the guy. Yeah. yeah right. Uh, and to four others, he left $6,250, which is $195,000 today. They also mentioned that his sister, Fanny Chapin, uh, she got $10,000 or about $312,000 today. Mm-hmm. So to say he left nothing to his family, that's totally untrue. Yeah. And it's also the fact that, let's, let's go back, it's important to look at the fact that he drew he drew this will sure. up. This is his own free his own free will and mm-hmm. of sound, as they always say, of sound mind and body. Right. 1901. He doesn't die till 04, right? 06. 06. Yeah. So, so yeah. Um, so five full years before he died, and he's still living. The bulk of his money is going to this alleged woman who he couldn't stand. Come on, right? The guy's <laughs> he's smarter than that. Now, now the yeah, will, the, the contents of the will were uh, revealed just a few days after he passed. Right. But even before that, I came across articles that said it was understood that Mrs. Sage was going to give it all away, which is exactly what she did. So he knew. And everybody knew that that's what he was going to do right. with the money. Uh, now, I do have another quote on this. And this is one of his friends. So let me uh, read that. Quote, the will is a credit to the old man. He was not interested in charities. His wife is and is qualified to do the right thing at the right time. And Mr. Sage did well to leave to her the fortune and the credit of distributing it. The will is not miserly. It merely shows that Mr. Sage wasn't bidding for postmortem eulogies. So clearly he was generous in his will. And yeah, he liked accumulating money and uh, he was frugal and he may have been, uh, you know, in business a little bit uh, of a mean, you know, not mean, but an aggressive business. An aggressive businessman. But he sure. knew perfectly well where his money was going when he passed Absolutely. on. Absolutely did. Yeah. And uh, so the next section I have here is that they live like paupers and they hated each other. Oh, now, uh, first of all, they lived in a mansion on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. Now, I know they owned uh, several different properties uh, there, uh, and I couldn't quite figure out which one was the exact location because mm-hmm. uh, each each article gives a different location of where his mansion was. Right. But it was either near Bryant Park, uh, you know, the New York Public Library right. uh, on Fifth Avenue or across from St. Patrick's Cathedral where Rockefeller Center sits today. Either way. Yeah. One of the articles, <laughs> mens- one of the articles mentions that his next-door neighbor were the Vanderbilts. Yeah, hardly, yeah, hardly the poor zone. Yeah, yeah. And, and there are sketches, you know, in those days they didn't have pictures in the newspapers, but there are sketches, and these were not tiny little homes. No, they were not at all. Uh, and of course they had their summer home on Long Island, yeah. but they clearly did not like showing off their wealth. Now, uh, the fact that they hated each other, 
I remember when I first heard the story, you know, this crazy story about him. Mm. I'm like, why would she name a college after him? Why would she name a foundation after him if she hated the man? You put your name on it, you know, or someone else's. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out that um, when she established the Russell Sage Foundation, mm-hmm. the original uh, draft documents had her name on it, and she went up and crossed it off and put his name down. His name down. And that's why it's called the Russell Sage Foundation to this day. Right. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, I just don't believe that they hated each other. And that he generally hated women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, okay. and, and women's education and women's higher education. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I have another quote here. So let me read that. This is from the New York Times. It's on page one from July 23rd, 1906, basically reporting his death. And uh, this quote really you know, uh, stood out to me and tells you about their relationship. Uh, this is from, I believe, Dr. Schmuck stating this. Basically, the presence of Mrs. Sage always gave him pleasure, and he was ever ready to welcome her with a smile and to take her by the hand. This is, this is two people that hated each other. Right, hated each other. And what else does he go on to say? Uh, later on, the article says, for six long hours, she sat by his bed, holding his hand and watching him draw his feeble breath. Clearly, these are two people that hate each other, you know? Yes, of course. Yeah. She didn't need to sit there all that time. No. Yeah, for somebody that hated um, her husband. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I think that really, that claim that they hate each other really does not hold water. Not at all. Now, the last thing I want to mention about that is by Aggie Smith, uh, and she wrote for the Troy Record. Now, she, you, you actually knew her, right? Mm-hmm. Now, she's not alive anymore, is no. that correct? Yeah, she's an archivist, yeah. At, at Russell Sage. At Russell Sage College. And uh, she wrote the following on January 29th of 2006 in the article that she wrote. Quote, it is my opinion that they loved and respected one another. And this is an archivist, you know, doing research mm-hmm. on them. So uh, you know, she came to the same conclusion that we have. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that's where she she said she, she. It just always bothered her these these rumors that went around. She said it just never made sense. She said why, you know, why they thought you know that this was revenge of Mrs. Sage to you know take this money and turn it into college. She goes, and then you, you here I found him, you know, find the speech of him standing right there saying, you know, here's the importance of women's education. Here's the importance of the women's suffrage movement. Standing outside mm-hmm. in his own words. She goes, this is not someone who hates women. You know, nobody had a gun to his head to right. say it. Yeah, it's just like, this is him. You yeah, believe he, this. <laughs> I, I think we have the, uh, I think the public, when someone becomes that wealthy, they think they should, they should just be giving all their money away as it comes in. And he took, a, I guess, a different approach and that is basically accumulate it and then when I die, uh, let, it, let its legacy do the work. And it really is still working to this day because uh, Emma right. Willard still, you know, is working off his endowment, Russell Sage College. I mean, I'm sure they that money's probably long spent, but but that got them going, and people right. contribute to this day. And and, and, the, and the Russell Sage Foundation does exist today. If you look at almost any PBS television show that you see, public, mm-hmm. you'll see it says Russell Sage Foundation on the bottom. Right. Yeah. Which yeah. I that's just one way that to say I've never looked at. I haven't looked at their. I forget what the name of that form is that they, you know, where all the money goes every sure. year and stuff, but it's a huge charitable foundation. Yeah. A, I mean, I think everybody dreams that more than a hundred years later, your money would still be doing something. Something that would, that would, to me, he would, he would probably be thrilled that he saw he made right. his money and it's still, still performing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, no, I have to throw this in and this was, this was part of what I was told originally that he hated dogs and she hated cats. And, <laughs> You know, it, it, it again is part of this this myth, and I found no evidence of that. In fact, uh, I did find an article 
from the New York Times. Uh, and basically, in 1905, August 31st of 1905, his 12-year-old cat, Malta, was reported missing. And there was this big story, you know, uh, and he offered a $10 reward or $312 today for someone to return his cat. They lo- the, And it mentions both him and her, that they loved this cat and, they, and how wonderful the cat was and it wandered off. And everyone just started bringing their cats by trying to get this reward money, but they never did find the cat, unfortunately. Right. Um, and from what I can tell, they both loved animals. They owned six dogs and seven cats at the end of his life. And after his death, this is a woman who supposedly, you know, didn't like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, dogs. Uh, or, yeah, didn't like, didn't like cats, I should say. She donated a huge chunk of money to humane societies and for the protection of birds. See? Yeah. <laughs> Another thing. Another so, thing. Right. Okay. So now we get to my favorite part, and that's the mausoleum. Ah. Yes. And, uh, of course, uh, we, we talked about how it was purposely built to block his first wife's grave, mm-hmm. and there's no name on it, so she wouldn't give him any recognition. And, uh, oddly, it had been designed three years before his death, and I found an article where Olivia, you know, his second wife, is talking about that she had come to Troy and she's reminded of the fact that they needed to work on the mausoleum. So I'm going to read that now. Okay, this is from uh, 1903, uh, June 17th of 1903. This is from the Syracuse Evening Herald on page five. And it starts, uh, Mrs. Russell Sage has arranged for a mausoleum of granite in Oakwood Cemetery at Troy in the form of a Greek temple to cost about $30,000. Amazing. Now, I did a quick calculation. That's about $935,000. This is a mausoleum that costs cost close to a million dollars. Later on in the article, it says work will shortly be begun. The temple will occupy the center of the sage lot, the granite shaft which marks the burial place of Mr. Sage's first wife to remain undisturbed. Mm. Now, Mrs. Sage says the following, quote, The idea of the mausoleum is no new one. It has been in our minds for three years. The accident of my being in the city brought it to a head, that's all. Mr. Sage agreed with me that now is a good time as any to have it attended to. So clearly he Mm -hmm. knew this mausoleum was being built and that there'd be no name on it. Right. Later on she states, Oakwood has always appealed to me as one of the most beautiful spots I have ever seen and it will satisfy me to know the mausoleum is there. So this is all planned uh, you know, the, the fact that it's blocking is just not true. I mean, right. uh, it's just, just... They didn't want to disturb his first wife. Right. Right. Uh, and I, I know this mausoleum is fairly large. It is big. And uh, oh, therefore, yeah. there wasn't probably much land to build on, and that's right. why it's so close yeah, it's to it's also her. sloped. It's on a hill. and Yeah. yeah. It's actually in a beautiful spot. Oh, it's I mean, a gorgeous a bunch, spot. A bunch of little yeah. roads come together in one spot yeah. there. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it was, and it was in a spot that was a spot where the, a lot of now the kind of old money was being buried through mm-hmm. there, you know, um, new money's on the other side of the pond. <laughs> now I, I should mention, I did a mausoleum tour. Uh, they actually open them up for charity and you can go inside and a lot of them are ransacked and uh, it's kind of sad to see. And uh, you know, you, you, we had this discussion uh, last week and that basically uh, there were rumors that people were buried with their jewels and therefore, you know, they, they'd want Well, that was the fear. And mm-hmm. that was why a lot of times they did not label um, the mausoleums for mm-hmm. fear that there would be grave robbers. Right. Right. Although if you're building this giant mausoleum, that's kind of a hint that you had some money. You know? had some money. Right. <laughs> right. I just, I'm going to show you a photo. 
Okay. And uh, I want you to look at this. This is Jay Gould's mausoleum compared with Russell Sage's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me pull that up. Okay, now I know people listening can't see this, but would you agree they look very similar? Very similar design. Jay, Jay Gould's is even slightly more ostentatious. It's like Corinthian capitals on the mm-hmm. top, and I think that uh, Russell Sage's are the Doric ones. I'm trying to remember my three, <laughs> three architectural designs. But yeah, basically it's a very, very similar in, in design for sure. And I wonder if, if um, Jay Gould's has the very sophisticated locking system that Russell Sage has. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. Um, but I just want to point a couple of things. First of all, his is larger, but his wife had actually, Jay Gould's wife had passed on earlier. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just Jay Gould in that mausoleum. It's it's his wife and a number of their children. Where Russell Sage, I believe it's just, just him. Just him. Right. Right. So therefore he didn't need as large of a mausoleum. Right. But it's still a fairly large building. Oh, it absolutely is. Uh, but yeah. they do look very similar. But the most noticeable thing to me is what's missing on both of them. And that's what? Their names. There's no name no on name. either one. Right. Uh, and there's a reason for this. And we kind of just hinted at that. And that's to do with robberies. Right. And uh, I came across it basically... There was a millionaire known as A.T. Stewart. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know anything about him? He didn't he have a uh, he was well, big huge department stores right. and things like that in New York City. Right. right. So he he didn't make his money on the stock market. He he actually did it through retail and right. so on. Um, but anyway, when he was buried in 1876, his grave was robbed and they held his body for ransom. And his wife had to pay a huge sum. It was never reported the exact amount to get the body back. Right. So when uh, Jay Gould passed on and when Russell Sage was getting close to death. They were very, very fearful that their bodies would be stolen and held for ransom. So when Jay Gould was buried, his his crypt is soldered closed. You cannot get into it. And that was to make sure that nobody got a hold of his body. Right. When Russell Sage passes on, Mrs. Sage wanted to make sure no one got into his grave also. Yeah. And I found some of these details. This is this is really crazy. It's so amazing. Yeah. So uh anyway, uh he was buried in a mahogany coffin, which was lined with copper. Uh, and then there were fancy trimmings all around. The coffin alone back then cost $1,000, which is $31,000 today. Wow. Then that coffin was then placed in a burglar-proof steel case. It had an unpickable lock. And when you closed it, it clamped closed in 20 different locations and could only be opened from the inside. If, <laughs> uh, one of the articles I said... Uh, it said that two locksmiths would take an enti- need an entire day to get into it. Uh, the cost of that burglar-proof steel case was $22,000 or $686,000 today. Now, I don't have this written down, but I did read somewhere that there was some sort of lock release inside of the coffin. And I guess that was so if he rose up from the dead, he could get out. And I also didn't write this down, but apparently there was an alarm hooked up to it. So if anybody did try to disturb it, uh, uh, it would others, trip. It would trip. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, this is what I found interesting. Uh, it says in the articles uh, about it is that the epitaph on the Sage Monument says, "quote I have done the best I could by the light of day." Now, do you know if there's anything on that mausoleum? Not that I have ever seen, unless it completely has worn away. But um, or or it's on the inside somewhere, right? Yeah. Or um, I mean, my thinking is maybe he was buried. And they put that there first, and then they went to re- they, the mausoleum wasn't finished, so they then built that on top. You know, you know what I'm saying? I don't know. Right. Well, no, because when because they talked about the Troy Daily Times talks a lot about it being going into the mausoleum. Oh, so it was already day. built. So it was already built. Hmm. Well, and she's there. When was she there? She's there in 1903. Right. Three. So. Right. 
you know, three years before he died, they started working on it. So right. it was it was completely done. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure from the articles I read. It made it sound like it wasn't done. So anyway, uh, it. I mean, that's not one of the mausoleums I have open when they do the mausoleum no. tour. No, nope, it'd be, it'd be it interesting not. to for someone to actually get in there uh, and see um, because they can't. I mean, again, again, according to the Troy Daily Times, when that outer door closed, Mm -hmm. locking in from the inside, you can't go in there. Well, uh, I thought that was the case around the coffin, not not the mausoleum itself. I thought it was the mausoleum itself. I've got to go back and look at the... Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, to check out the Troy, because they were very specific about all that uh, information, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was the, the door closed and it sealed. They had, you know, some great flowery statement about, you know, sealing his fate forever or something like that. It, it'd, be, it'd be pretty yeah. funny if none yeah. of that really was true. They just said it's to keep, keep people from going in. <laughs> from you know? going in there. It's like, oh, look at this. You just push it and it opens. <laughs> yeah, right, know? right. Um, now, I did want to add one last thing to this, and it was the most expensive burial of any private citizen in the U.S. up until that point. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, I'm sure since that time there've been some that have exceeded that, but, uh, bet. yeah, kind of crazy, huh? So, yeah. so clearly she, you know, basically she didn't want people to know who was in there. Right. Right. To protect him really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and again, you know, the whole thing, you know, she's buried out in Oakwood Cemetery in Syracuse. Again, not uncommon as a second marriage of, you know, you know, several people, you know, it's like, they're still going to be married, buried with their first husbands, even though they were you know, remarried and mm-hmm. things like that, you know? Yeah. Sad. And, uh, she's buried with her family. And she's buried with her family. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, that's all it boils down to. Um, right. so uh, I have two more little facts and this didn't really fit into this little summary I did, uh, about him. And one is that he was key in preserving Mount Vernon as a national treasure. He was actually the one who went before Congress and requested that they purchase it. And of course, uh, for there are, I have a lot of listeners not in the United States. Mount Vernon is the home of George Washington, George our first Washington. president. Yeah. yeah, and I've been there many times. It's a right. beautiful place. And it was Russell Sage, the stingy person who was so mean, when he was an elected representative, he requested, and right. of course, uh, the and, United States and who it. does the restoration? The Mount Vernon Ladies Association. Wow, I didn't know. So that. yeah, so he's you know who and he supported that effort all that time. There, it's it's interesting. It's like one of the first major, um, you know, our national kind of our national historic sites mm-hmm. is Mount Vernon, and it is done by this Mount Vernon Ladies Association that he supports in his money. Again, the woman, the pan who allegedly can't stand women and can't stand, and and there he is supporting that. Uh, I should also mention that Russell Sage vehemently opposed slavery. He gave a speech uh, before Congress. Uh, and some people say that may have been part of why we got into the Civil War, although that's kind of far-fetched, I think. But he really was against slavery. And uh, I should also mention that when his wife, you know, when Mrs. Sage finally died, the second wife did die, all the rest of the money went to charity. Again, millions and millions and millions of dollars to all these institutions. Yeah. Now, you wanted to add something. I, I do, because, you know, again, they were members of the First Presbyterian Church. And um, that was a noted abolitionist Church, Reverend Nathan Beeman, who he would have known, was this very fiery um, abolitionist minister. Mm-hmm. Um, the First Presbyterian Church is brings in uh, Reverend um, Henry Highland Garnett, who becomes a black pastor mm-hmm. of the Liberty Street Presbyterian Church for Colored People. That was the actual name of the church. They gave them the session house for the Presbyterian Church to start their first church. Mm-hmm. And when they built that beautiful 
Greek revival structure. So again, his every time you see some of these quotes, I go, oh, that's that's a that's again part of his tenet of of being a member of the Presbyterian Church. Sure. And they were always noted, you know, they were noted abolitionists. Wow. Um, you know, none of that comes out when you read articles about him. Now, you were going to add one other thing about how, uh, you know, his reputation came about. Yeah. So, um, you know, after after um, the money was, uh, Mrs. Sage gives the money to start the Russell Sage College, mm-hmm. uh, which is now, you know, so now it starts, uh, it opens in 1916. You know they had they had moved the campus. They moved had opened up the, the new school for on the east side for Emma Willard School, and now you've got this empty campus sitting down downtown. And Eliza Kellis, who is now the new headmistress of the Emma Willard School, is having these conversations with Mrs. Sage. What are we going to do? And so she gives the money to start the college, and um, I think it was you know a good sum. I think it's around four million dollars. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly plenty enough, but Eliza Kellis somehow obviously knew how much money she had to play with. Sure. And uh, I think was upset in this correspondence that Aggie found um, that she was a little upset that there wasn't going to be more money um, <laughs> given to that. And she said, oh, my God, what is it? That, is it Russell Sage? Did he hate women so much? And and Aggie said, I really think that somewhere that whole Troy connection starts all the way back there to these this, this wow. early correspondence about this about starting the college. Yeah, yeah, uh, just just incredible, um, and the fact she was so generous with the money. I mean, you, you go around Troy, the Russell Sage campus is beautiful, the Emma Willard campus is beautiful. Uh, you go to RPI, there's the Russell Sage building, which for many years was its main building. Yeah. Um, and and then a few years later, she gives even more money for the second Russell Sage building, which is named after really after his nephew. nephew. I think I think it was a dining hall, maybe. I think so. Yeah, yeah Sage Dining Hall. Yes, right. it is. Actually, it is. You're right. So uh, you know, so this is a woman just giving money. In, in fact, she had to have a staff because she got so many letters every day requesting right. money to sort through this and to figure out who to give the money to. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's it just you know again it's it's always you know the, the tea table gossip kind of thing you know where you know all this information just keeps going round and round the circle and then the myths don't die and mm-hmm. it just keeps hanging on there and oh my gosh you know and as well, many times as I tried to dispel the myths you know like ah oh, you know, Russell Sage okay here we here we go again <laughs> well maybe this will help in just Hopefully a small this way. will help in a small way. So I guess we can say the whole Russell Sage myth is busted. <laughs> well, Kathy, I just want to thank you for actually driving out to my house and uh, <laughs> sitting down with me to uh, talk about Russell Sage. I've wanted to, wanted to do this story for years, and uh, I'm glad you're able to you know help me set the record straight as to what really is the truth. Now, uh, I want to tell a little bit about uh, the museum itself that you uh, work at. Okay, so yes, yeah, so right up the street from Russell Sage College, mm-hmm. we have the um, Harkloop Museum of Historic Rensselaer County, which was formerly the Rensselaer County Historical Society, and uh, we have uh, three buildings on our on our campus. Uh, we have an 1827 uh, wonderful federal style townhouse that is open for tours and things, and then we have our car building, which is where we have our changing exhibition galleries, and uh, we cover all the history of Rensselaer County, not just in Troy, mm-hmm. and uh, which is about 460 square miles, and uh, we also have a large research library, so that is where a lot of all this wonderful information 
letters, correspondence, uh, business records, um, you know, that covers, you know, the gamut from basically around 1791 when Russell County is formed to the present. We had a director that said history is what we had for breakfast. So <laughs> um, we collect right up to, and we really try to recognize every face and every story. So we're always looking at all the different groups that uh, came into this, to this area, uh, the different ethnic groups, uh, the different, just the whole changes in the, in the history of, of the county. And mm-hmm. so that is what we covered there. Yeah. yeah, it is a really spectacular, uh, it's, it's a great endeavor. And I can't even imagine how much in the way of documents, because Troy was oh. once such a, a wealthy city and had m- numerous newspapers. And, you know, just to be able to catalog all that stuff, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people working on that. I, so a lot of people, a lot of volunteers. And, you know, we've been around as an organization since 1927. So we're coming up on our 100th anniversary mm-hmm. pretty soon, So um, which is exciting. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, I did mention to you earlier before we started recording that I never, I have been in the museum multiple times, but I never knew there was a second half to it, which is really a beautifully preserved uh, building. So I want to just tell a little bit about that. And it's, it's open during the Victorian stroll, which you guys do around Christmas time. And it's also uh, open for various tours yeah. throughout the year. Yep. We actually do a second Saturday tour, uh, two o'clock every, you know, you can go to our webpage, org and uh, sign up for for tours of the house and and yes, probably the the most well attended event is the um, our our holiday green show. This year, of course, is the Gilded Age because we are all <laughs> jumping on the bandwagon of of this HBO wonderful series. And actually, you would see the front of the house as well um, in episode eight and nine of season one. Um, where they they show a young lady going up the steps of of our place, but it was it's a great house. It was really um, designed by Martin Euclid Thompson, and he was a New York City architect. Um, but instead of thinking that Troy followed New York City, he really came to Troy and created this as a prototype house, and then went back to New York City and in Manhattan, and they were built all over the place. And there's probably only one other example of that, which is the Merchant House Museum in New York. That's mm-hmm. that's extant. And, wow. and open to the public as a museum. And that's newer than our buildings, about 1830. Right. And um, so it's really kind of, it's, it just shows that, you know, going all the way back to Mr. Sage, you know, being here in Troy at Hutton and, and, um, and, and River Streets at a time uh, when Troy really grew so quickly, it also showed there's a very sophisticated taste. And as you come up and you come up to visit here in Troy, and really even out in the county, there's a lot of, very forward-thinking people, and you know, looking at at the architecture, the, the really the built environment that's left mm-hmm. here, really shows that you know it, it was was not an afterthought. It was Troy and places like New York City, Philadelphia, Boston. We were all growing at at the same time, right? So yeah, it is a spectacular city, and uh, I've done the Tiffany tour, I think twice, mm-hmm. and I, yeah, we have more Tiffany windows than anywhere like we're capping than anywhere in the United States. <laughs> It's just, it's just incredible. incredible. Uh, uh, this the city is spectacular. And I should also mention, uh, pretty much from spring through fall, you you and others uh, do tours every we Saturday. Do. Yeah, we have, uh, yeah, and that's how I how I actually right. met you initially. Yeah. And uh, uh, the ones I've done with you are just amazing. You're, you're a wealth of information. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and uh, you know, you just you walk around, and each tour is a little bit different, and they're not even that expensive. I think they're ten dollars, right? Uh, twenty bucks. Oh, twenty bucks. Twenty okay. bucks. Yep. yep. I, yeah. I, I, maybe I'm because I'm about an hour and a half tour, so you yeah, know, it, it's really a, a good deal. And uh, I do recommend if you're ever up in Troy, uh, you should go. Uh, and, and Troy's actually, I hate to say it, but it's a nice uh, Albany's nice, but Troy has so much more history to it. Uh, I don't. It's know. a great walkable city too, especially right. you know the downtown area and things. And we got the great farmers market on Saturday, and mm-hmm. it's a lot to see, a lot to yeah. do. 
Um, so is there anything else you want to add? Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. Wow. Come well, and visit us. Yeah. yeah <laughs> definitely. Um, yeah. Well, thanks. Thank you again for uh, being on the podcast. And oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. And, and you know, I have to thank you because you really did a lot of even more homework, which is now we get to add this to our Russell Sage file. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ho- hopefully I wasn't too far off in what I, what I accumulated. No, it's great. Um, and uh, yeah. Um, and maybe in a year or two, we can do that, un- that Uncle Sam one that we had talked about originally. Um, so, but that again, would be great. Well, thanks again. And, uh, I'll just say goodbye to everybody and, uh, take care everyone. Bye. All right. Bye. Take care. Thanks.